Good morning. My name's Matt. I'm a pastor at City Reform. We want to dismiss our uh, children for Children's Church, and we're going to ask our parents to walk them there. It's a, a new procedure in this building, but uh, the, the powers that be thought this was wise. And who am I to argue with the powers that be? Uh, uh, we think it's a good way to do it. So, uh, and again, at the end of the service, parents will ask you to go and bring your kids back. We're adjusting to a new building. Uh, a lot of really good things about this space. The rows are a little tighter, and we have to get up and move some, so just ask you all to remain uh, patient and flexible as we figure out how to best occupy this new space. We've been working through a book of the Bible, an Old Testament book called Zechariah. Uh, the beginning of the book includes eight visions, uh, and uh, we're on the fifth of those visions. This is an uh, admittedly difficult uh, vision. We want to remember the context because it helps us understand what's happening. Zechariah is called a post-exilic prophet. That means he spoke to God's people after they had been captured and lived living for several generations in Babylon. They returned under the Persian Empire. Uh, uh, Zechariah dates his own prophecy in 520 B.C., it was a time where the people had been back in the land for about 16 years, but their first project, A number one, on the top of the to-do list, had stalled out. The first thing they needed to do upon return was to build the temple, but when they started to do it, they faced opposition. The surrounding people groups saw it as a statement of autonomy, and they resisted the temple being built, so the people stopped. But in the year 520, uh, two leaders, Zerubbabel, who was governor, and Joshua, who was the high priest, began to encourage the people in the rebuilding process. And then two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, spoke God's word to them to encourage them to rebuild. The passage we're looking at today is part of Zechariah's encouragement. We'll see a first direct re reference to Zerubbabel, who's a leader, the sort of civic leader with some role in the government as a governor. And then we'll also see a reference to the rebuilding of the temple. But when we see this sort of confusing uh, story, we'll remind ourselves this is about rebuilding the temple. It's about how God gives encouragement to do something hard. Let me read the passage and together we'll affirm it as God's word. Zechariah 4 verses 1 to 14. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of, a, out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. 
These seven are the eyes of the Lord which reign throughout the earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we uh, read these different visions, we're comforted by the fact that even Zechariah didn't know what the vision meant, uh, and thankfully he asked, so we have some interpretation as we go forward. Uh, But the heart of this vision is it's a vision of a lampstand, a lampstand with seven gold lamps upon it, and uh, there are on each of the lamps uh, seven lips The idea is that the lip would be a place for a wick, so there were seven times 749 wicks, it would have been bright. Um, These lampstands were found throughout the the history of the temple in its earliest forms, and and later the idea of a lampstand would be crystallized in uh, a structure that we think of as a menorah. If you you live near Squirrel Hill or you're familiar with Uh, The holiday of Hanukkah, you would see a a golden lampstand with several candles on top of it. It's roughly similar, but what Zechariah saw uh, probably had many more wicks and many more candles. It would have been very bright. If you were in the ancient world and you saw a a lamp of that many wicks and that that much brightness, you would have thought, uh, wow, right? You don't usually see things that bright, but you also may have thought, where will they get all the oil? Uh, if you were living in the ancient world, you, you wanted light, you couldn't turn on the electricity, but you would light a lamp, usually a lamp made of uh, olive oil, and uh, you would have to refill this regularly. It would be expensive, it would be time-consuming, and the, the heart of this uh, vision is not only a lamp that is bright, but a lamp that is being filled with oil. You'll notice not only are there seven lamps, but there's a bowl on top of them that's supplying the oil. And next to them are trees, not just any trees, but olive trees. Olives were the primary source of oil, both for cooking, but also for burning. So the idea is that there's a source of oil nearby. And as we reach the end of the image and the end of uh, this explanation, there's also a reference to two branches one branch on each of the trees, and there is next to those branches, each of them, a golden pipe that we are told bring, pours out golden oil. Now, uh, again, we'll, we'll talk in greater detail about what it means, but at the heart of it is this question of how there will be enough oil for something to keep burning. There's a bowl, there's, there's a source of, of uh, um, oil coming down these pipes, it's not quite sure how it all connects. But there is a source that's sufficient for the need. Now, even though we don't use uh, uh, oil lamps, the, uh, the idea of, of needing oil is still part of our culture. You may sometimes use the expression, burning the midnight oil. You perhaps have heard that before. It means you're working late into the night. And it comes from a time when people actually had to you know, light a lamp and, and do it in the evening. Um, it's generally recognized that the first use of the phrase, Burning the Midnight Oil was found in a poem written by an English poet named Francis Quarles in 1635. 
In this poem, he's talking about the the futility of human labor. He quotes from the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says, We spend our midday sweat, our midnight oil. We tire the night in thought, the day in toil. And it's this picture of human striving that brings no rest. Now, it's commonly known that uh, Francis Quarles wrote this line. It's not commonly known that Francis Quarles had 18 children. I learned that in Wikipedia, and I put it together. I figured out the reason he was burning the midnight oil is he had so many kids. They kept waking him up at night, and he had to go help with the diapers or something. Well, we're, we're hoping Francis did that in 1635. Um, but even, even in other forms, uh, we know that the idea of lamps running out of oil was an important feature. If, again, you're familiar with the celebration of, of Hanukkah. It's in a celebration where the the Jewish people remember a restoration of the temple years later, 165 AD. They they cleansed it, they pushed out the imperialistic Greeks, and they lit the oil lamps with just enough light for one night, and yet the light stayed burning for eight days. It was a miracle of lamps with oil, and one in which we still are reminded today of the importance of God providing oil for lamps. The reason that we see this vision, however, was not immediately about a particular lamp. Remember, this is a vision. It's God communicating something to Zechariah with pictorial images that have meaning. And as we begin to see the context of the passage, we realize that it really has nothing to do with literal oil, but it's rather a question of how there will be enough energy and strength to do the task at hand. You'll notice as we moved through the passage, there were references you know, to the lamp and the oil, and then all of a sudden, he starts talking about Zerubbabel building the temple. And then he's back to the lamp and the oil and the pipes and, and what are these things? Well, woven together is the vision of the lamps with a source of oil and the interpretation that we're first given is to Zerubbabel, uh, you will build the temple. Not by strength, not by power, but not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So, um, two things. Two things we know in the passage. They go together. Two messages we bring from it. First of all, God will use people to accomplish His purposes. But second, we need His strength to do it. In many ways, these two things have to go together because there's so many ways for us to go wrong. Uh, Some of us, when we encounter difficulties in life, are so overwhelmed by the magnitude of the hard things that are happening that we find it hard to believe that God could ever use us. We come up against an obstacle, and in the passage, these obstacles are portrayed as a mighty mountain, and the obstacles in our life feel so hard, we think, I don't know how I can do it. But we also have an opposite problem. Some of us in different parts of our life may struggle with both things. And the opposite problem is that we actually feel fairly competent. And we feel like we we can do it in our own strength. And so we need to hear this reminder, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the first thing we see in the passage, and that is that God uses people. Uh, We see that, first of all, even in the very image of the lampstand. Now, there's some some debate about the lampstand, but it's generally recognized that the lampstand is meant to represent the work of God's people 
and their witness for him. There's a number of reasons we see it, but most compelling is that there is a huge overlap between the Old Testament book of Zechariah and the New Testament book of Revelation. And in that book, the author of Revelation, uh, who's John, uh, speaks of a, a golden lampstand, which is the church. And it seems clear that he was reading Zechariah. He understood under God's guidance the interpretation of what was happening. Uh, even Jesus spoke of uh, Christians who lived for him as being people who would let their light shine for the world who would not hide their lamp under a bushel. So the idea of shining and burning makes a lot of sense. It also helps us understand the primary question, which is how will they have energy to do it? Where will the oil come from? But we want to recognize in the beginning that in many ways the passage is a promise that God will use His people to accomplish His purpose. Uh, Though we are broken and flawed and weak, God desires to make Himself known through us. One of the primary things that Israel was called to do was to make God known to the nations. They were meant to live in a way that revealed God's character to the folks that were around them. Now, they, like us, failed often in this task, but it is nonetheless the thing that God intends to do. He intends to put His glory as a light within jars of clay, people like me and you, even uh, broken and weak as we may be. The second place we see this idea of God using people uh, is the way in which God intends to use Zerubbabel and also uh, we've seen Joshua, the high priest. In the close of of this section, uh, there's an identity given to the branches on the trees, uh, and uh, thankfully Zechariah didn't know, so he gets to tell us, uh, what are these two branches that feature so prominently in my vision? And the answer is that they are uh, the two anointed ones, verse 14, who stand by the Lord of all the earth. Now, in its immediate context, uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, they're talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel. And and this whole passage is about Zerubbabel who is serving God's purpose. Uh, In the uh, ancient world, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, both priests and kings were anointed with oil to set them apart for the purpose of ministry. And so the message that we have here is that there are two branches that are uh, used by God for the purpose of continuing the brightness of the lamp. Zerubbabel and Joshua are used by God to help them build the temple. And that's really the central message of all of, all of what we're looking at in Zechariah. Zechariah is encouraging the people to come in and support Joshua and Zerubbabel as they rebuild the temple. But you'll notice in this section something very interesting. It says that they were branches on a tree. And what that's generally understood to be that those trees represent not just one high priest and one governor, but all of the priests and all of the kings that God would use to accomplish His purposes. Here in the midst of this question of how will you get enough oil, God shows that there are olive trees. There are people that he's given that that, that help, that are channels and instruments that God uses to shape and to change us. With that in mind, we, we begin to understand why it is that woven into this vision of the lamp and the olive trees is a direct statement to Zerubbabel. And and again, we see this uh, problems emerging before them, the opposition of the people around them, 
the difficulty of building the temple as a people who themselves had been in exile not long before. And in the vision, we hear God speaking to the mountain, Who are you, O great mountain? Before you, Zerubbabel, shall become, uh, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. That God is purposing to work through this leader to bring down the obstacles and to help them to rebuild the temple. In fact, uh, Zechariah goes on to speak of the future event. If this was 520, four years later, the temple would be completed. And he, he speaks of it here as something that's already happened. Uh, continuing in verse 7, And he shall, that is Zerubbabel, shall bring forward the top stone amidst the shouts of grace, grace to it. He's inviting the people to, to think that they can almost picture now the completion of the project. He's going to do it. In the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this stone. His hands also shall complete it. That's, that's a, a prophecy that Zechariah is making. And, and the reason he's so specific, verse 9, is he says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So he's letting the people know that uh, not only is he going to do it and you should support him and work with him, but when that happens, and you've been stuck on this for a long time, but God's working, this project's going to be done in four years and you will know that God has sent me to speak to you. It's, it's going to authenticate everything else that Zechariah is telling them. So God works through people. He's determined uh, to work through His people. Building the temple is a key part of it. And He's going to use these human leaders as a, as a help and a means to get it done. Let me pause for a moment here before we move on and just ask you to consider where in your life it's difficult that God could be using people or that God might be using you. In the text, he speaks to those who are, who are struggling, maybe dragging their feet and doubting and grumbling. He says, there are those who despise the day of small things. Are there places in your life where your fruit and your labor, that your labors and your activities seem so small that you are tempted to wonder if you can ever get anything done? Are you struggling perhaps to not despise the day of small things? I think, first of all, about uh, uh, the life of parents, particularly the, the parents of small children. Uh, your, li your life in that position is, is spent day in and day out doing very small things, and you often find yourself wondering if any of it really matters. Uh, my friend Jim Partridge calls it the, the valley of the diapers, uh, the time in life where you're trudging onward, and it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight and you wonder, does any of it make a difference? So it can be a real challenge. Uh, I was, it was encouraging for me yesterday to, as we listened to some people uh, sharing their stories as they were preparing to join the church, uh, it was really encouraging to hear many people point out the way in which God had used their parents, their Sunday school teachers, their, uh, their folks in church around them to shape their life. The, the small things that we do are used by God over a long period of time to accomplish His purpose. You know, we have to be careful not to despise the day of small things because God isn't determined to use His people to do His purpose. 
How about perhaps in, in your work? Uh, perhaps if your work is, your calling is taking you out into the home, into the, uh, the marketplace, into the workforce, uh, maybe you have a job that is really big and glamorous, but I guess most of you probably have a job that has a lot of parts to it that seem sort of small, maybe mundane or routine. And you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, you're going to trudge to work, and, and you're going to find yourself asking, does it really matter what I do? Does anyone notice? If you are, are fortunate enough to, or cursed enough to work in finance, depending on your perspective, uh, you may find yourself asking the question, I'm moving money around and I'm doing things with numbers on paper or on the computer, but does this really impact anyone's life? It feels small. We're tempted to despise the day of small things. Or perhaps in the, in the church itself, much of what we do uh, it can be seen as somewhat routine, mundane. Uh, the role you play in helping to build our congregation, our church, is a, is a product of lots of really small things. The building of God's people today is uh, the building of our modern temple. We don't uh, build a building the way they had to build a temple, but the New Testament says that God dwells in His people and that we build up the temple of God, not with a physical structure, but with a people. Building the church requires lots of small steps, many of them seeming unglamorous. And perhaps you volunteered recently for a rotation where you, you've agreed to come early and set things up, and at the end of the day, someone tears them down, and next week you do it all again. Or perhaps in your ministry of meeting with people in a small group or, or, or volunteering in some other place, you begin to think this is not really going anywhere. It's a lot of work, and I'm just not seeing the fruit. Well... We are tempted to despise the day of small things, are we not? And yet the message of Zechariah is that God does use us. Small though our things may be, seemingly insignificant in the moment, He uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And as we see God's power at work, His steady stream and supply of power, we are encouraged to believe that yes, Though we are jars of clay, God is going to put His glory in us. We too can shine for Him. We can be a faithful witness. We can be used effectively even in our small things, in our small place. We need to be encouraged uh, to know that God can use people. But there is an equal danger, an opposite danger. It's addressed also in the passage, and that is the danger of thinking we can do it on our own. And you recognize there's always so many ways to fall, isn't there? Uh, some of us can go through our lives and we hit up against things, we hit the mountain of opposition and we say, I'm done, I can't do it, there's no way God can use me, I'm defeated. But others of us, or maybe just in different parts of the same life, we find it easy to cruise along and we feel pretty competent and pretty good. Now... We have all kinds of people here, and I would guess all of us probably can identify some part of our life where we feel both of these ways. But the reality is, many of us are here in Oakland or this part of Pittsburgh precisely because we're moving forward with something we've been called to do, some new field of training or some new job. Something, something has brought some of you across oceans 
to come and to study, to be trained, and to move forward. You're, you're used to feeling like you know how to do things. You're used to feeling competent. I, we don't know this for sure, but I think there's a lot of reason to believe that Zerubbabel would have felt quite competent. He was, we we're told by Ezra, a governor. He was going to be used. In fact, he, he has this promise that God's going to use him to build the temple. He's used to commanding people. He tells them where to go and they do it. He's probably more educated, more trained, more competent, more smart than most of the people around him. The passage contains a direct word to Zerubbabel. I think this is a word for any of us as we begin to do ministry. Verse 6, then the angel said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, Zerubbabel needs to hear something different. I suspect we both need both of these things all the time. He doesn't just need to be encouraged that God is working for them, but he needs to be reminded that if he begins to think the strength is his own, the power is his own, or is there some source of power and might other than God himself, he will be detaching himself from the Spirit of God. And I think in many ways that is also the message of this passage It's a very subtle part of the passage as we look forward. We've already heard this very clear message, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The subtle part of the passage has to do with the third paragraph, on the second paragraph, no, sorry, the third paragraph, uh, the golden pipes and the golden oil that come from the trees. There's quite a bit of discussion about this. I'll spare you all the details But there's a sense in which the olive trees seem to be supplying the oil, but also a sense in which the pipes are near them. There's nothing that says they're directly attached. I think that's a reminder of these two truths. On one hand, God really does use people. He used the kings and the priests and the prophets. The God of the heavens who made all things really did use people to accomplish His purposes. But I believe within this vision, there is a reminder for Zerubbabel. You know, friend, Zechariah was saying to him, the pipe doesn't really connect to you. It's just going past you. Any of you who are in ministry or any, any sort of service of any kind must have this constant reminder. There is a power at work in you. God puts his glory in jars of clay but it's always coming from somewhere else. You see, the opposite danger we can find is once we've gotten our confidence to go into a new task and we've convinced ourselves that we can do it and that that God's going to help us, we can begin to think that it's really our own doing. We can begin to be overconfident, trusting our own strength and ability, trusting our competencies, trusting a source of power, other than God. And so Zechariah reminds Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How are we uh, in need of learning this message in our lives? There were many different alternate sources of power that someone might face. Uh, Zerubbabel had temptations all around him. 
There were all, all manner of uh, other power sources around him. He, he may have been uh, looking to the surrounding political resources to give strength to the building project. After all, part of the opposition were the, the surrounding people groups that, that didn't want to be cut off from the building of the temple. They didn't want a, a distinctly uh, Jewish temple for this unique God, of the heaven, uh, creator of the heavens and the earth. Zerubbabel easily could have enlisted other power sources. He could have made compromises. When you read the, the history in the book of Ezra, you realize this was all around him. And it was tempting. But Zerubbabel stayed true to his purpose and he drew on a power source that was from God alone for the building of the temple. Let me just ask you to think for a moment where you, where Christians today are tempted to seek a source of power and might other than the Spirit of God. It has been our temptation for many years uh, to entrust the building of the church to sources of power other than God. And quite simply, we might simply uh, think it's our own strength, our own resources, our own money, our own ability, and our own efforts, and we become prayerless. But sometimes we substitute other sources of power. Uh, for years, Christians have been intrigued by the power of celebrity witness. A famous person be, uh, becomes a Christian, and whether they have theological training or basic maturity or even basic competencies, we very quickly put them on a stage and we elevate them to a position of great power and we say, look, that's our ticket to recognition. That's our ticket to building the church. All we need are some famous people. If we can just have more Christians in Hollywood, Christian actors and athletes, and there are Christian actors and athletes. God cares about them. But that's not our source of power, is it? If we only have someone with the right celebrity status who's approved of in all the right magazines, I'm old, all the right uh, internet articles, social media, the social media influencers. That's how we could build the church. What a great idea. Is it? Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, not that you can see, not that's in you, not that you can grab a hold of, but by my spirit. Other sources of temptation for, for us, aren't there? I think for the last couple of decades, Christians have wrestled with the appropriate way to engage with politics. Loving our neighbor means we care about politics. We seek the common good. We desire that they would be well cared for. We have a more just rather than less just system. But isn't it a sneaky and tempting alternate source of power? Isn't it tempting for us to think if only we had the right people in the right places, if only we had the right assurances from the politicians that it would favor our policies, then we could build the church. Friends, for the last 1,700 years, since the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, the church has wrestled with how to use political power. And that sort of power corrupts. It offers a, a temptation to us that we could just control things more directly. We could force people to do what is good. It is an alluring power in a, a deep, deep temptation. 
that the power that could be used for good can corrupt the church and make us think that we'll build it by some source of power other than God's Spirit. How does God intend to give us His Spirit? If our, if our building is not by might that we see, not by power that we generate or find around us or control, if, if it's by His Spirit, how does God bring it? Well, He, he brings it through His channels in His way. We read throughout the Bible that God intends to build His church through the words of the prophets, through the worship of God's people, as God's people depend on Him in prayer, as we gather and do ordinary, mundane things week in and week out, He promises to build His church. The very small things we despise are the things God promises to use. Think about our position today. We're not, we're not in the, the exact same position by any means, but many times Christians can feel like we are also post-exilic people. The golden age of uh, cultural Christianity lies behind, behind us. We wonder how we'll have power, how we will find ways to, to move forward and build our church. And we find opposition that's increasingly deep, determined, and in may, many cases very hostile. Where's our source of power? Isn't it really those same mundane things that God has given us? Reading the Bible, the Word preached, God's people gathered in prayer, living faithfully day in and day out, doing the small stuff. Isn't it our prayers that move the hand of God to build His church? We just close with that question. Do we believe that we will order our lives and build our church by the power of God? There's really no better test question than to ask, how is our prayer life? You see, the more competent we are, the more powerful we are, the more access we have to some other source of might, the less likely we are to think we actually have to pray. But the church will not be built any other way. You will not bear true, lasting fruit any other way than dependence on God, crying out to Him in prayer and seeing His Spirit work through you. That that is both the challenge and the blessing of the image of this candlestick. You can burn. We can burn brightly for God and not be consumed. We can be now, in this time, and in this place, a faithful witness for Jesus where we are. No matter how difficult your workplace environment is, no matter how much opposition we receive from cultural and political sources, and I am not downplaying that opposition at all. It's real, and it's difficult, and if you don't recognize it, it'll influence you without you knowing but our source of power is in God. There is a golden pipe that pours a continual stream of oil into the fountain of the church. And yes, it is by the prophets and the priests, but it comes from the very fountain of God Himself. You see, Zerubbabel and Joshua were only branches. They were on branches on something much bigger. The final thing that Zechariah shows us is that one day these branches would come together. 
that the prophet and the priest would no longer be mere humans, but they would be gathered together in one person, the divine Son of God, who would be for us the true prophet and priest, who would be poured out. He would be crushed. One of the reasons olive oil is used, uh, scholars think, is that the crushing of the oil of the olive releases the oil. It was in the crushing of Jesus that a fountain is opened, that life comes from him, that the spirit is poured out on the church. So friends, the question for us today, is that our power? Do we receive it in the word? Do we cry out in prayer? Are we determined to see God working in us and through us and among us, not in any power or might we can control with our hands, but through the working of his spirit and the word in our worship and in prayer. Let's recommit ourselves together to God's means of giving grace to the church. Would you uh, pray with me as I pray out loud?